0: All right, we're in Ephesians chapter four, and we're uh, going to look at the first six verses of Ephesians chapter four tonight, and uh, we're doing a verse by verse study of Ephesians. You know, we're almost through with our Revelation study on Sunday night. Brother Ralph called me. and said, "How many were in the in the in the sanctuary when you was preaching?" You said people were in the sanctuary. I said, "Well, the Pew family was here, <laughs> but but when I'm preaching, see I." Uh, I record that and I upload it and, you know, and and that kind of thing. And so when I do that, I envision all of y'all being here. So in a sense, you were here. You know, I can just see you sitting out there. Uh, But uh, we're almost through with our Revelation study. We're in Revelation 21, and we'll wind that up pretty soon. And then we're going to study the creation account. The first verses of Genesis. So we've gone from Omega, we're going to Alpha, <laughs> the last book of the Bible, to the first book of the Bible. I think it'll be an interesting study. But on Wednesday nights we're in Ephesians chapter. Uh, tonight we're in chapter 4. So let's read the first six verses. Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called Now, that last part, and in you all, proves that Paul was from the South. I'll get that. You all. You know. Okay. Never mind. All right. Now, these verses, Paul urges believers to live a life that is worthy of what Jesus has done for us. You know, what has the Lord done for us? He saved our soul. He's... He's given us new life. He has blessed us so greatly. God has done so much for us. So in response to what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says that we are to live a life that is worthy of what Jesus has done. And and basically what he's saying is because of what Christ has done in your life, live for his honor and for his glory. You know, honor him. Glorify him. Think of all he has done for you. Therefore, in response to that, live a worthy life. Honor him and glorify him. And so in these these verses and in some of the verses following this, Paul gives us several elements of a worthy life. What does a worthy life look like? We are called to live a a life that is worthy of what Jesus has done. So what does that look like? Well, a worthy life is one that honors and glorifies Christ. A worthy life is a life that is obedient to the calling of God for believers to live a life of holiness, service, and sacrifice. Now, these verses that we look at tonight teach that a worthy life is a life that is lived in fellowship with other believers in the life of the church, of a local church. Part of the worthy life that we are to live is that we honor Christ by being active and involved in the life of a local church. That's, that's a part of the worthy life. In other words, if a Christian, you know, If a Christian is not active and involved in the life of a local church, serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord and, and fellowshipping with other believers and being a part of that church fellowship to fulfill the great commission, then they're not living a worthy life. Part of the worthy life in which we honor and glorify God is to be active and involved in the life of his church. So first of all, I want to talk about the importance of the church. Now, Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the moment a person is saved, the Lord adds them. This is what the Bible teaches. When you were saved, the Lord added you to His body. You became a part of His bride. You became a part of His building. You became a part of His church. When you were saved, you became a part of His church in the universal sense. You know, There's the church universal, and then there's the church local. So when we were saved, here's what the Bible teaches. When we were saved, the Lord added us to his body, added us to his bride, added us to his building, added us to his church in the universal church, in the universal sense. Now the church in the universal sense includes all the redeemed in the world, all of the redeemed of the ages, those who are in heaven and those who are still alive on the earth. So we are a part of the church universal. When you were saved, the Lord added you to his church. But the Lord also teaches, the Bible also teaches that it's the Lord's will for every believer to join themselves to a local church, to a local congregation, to the visible church. You know, the church universal is, you know, it's there, it's real, but it's kind of, you know, it's kind of invisible. You can't see it, but it's, it's real and it's there. But it, the Lord's, it's the Lord's will that not only are we a part of the visible church, which he adds us to when we're saved, but he, it's his will for us to be a part of a local assembly, a local congregation that is a part of the universal church. Now we live in a day when many people discount the importance of local church membership. You know, a lot of people feel like today they don't need the church, you know, that they can live the Christian life just fine without really being involved in a church. Uh, there, there's a growing sense among many people that they can have like, you know, be Lone Ranger Christians, you know, not part of the group, Part of a congregation, but they can do their own thing and be, you know, be a Lone Ranger Christian without being a part of a local church. But here's what the New Testament teaches the New Testament repeatedly emphasizes the importance of the local church. Now, let me give you some facts of the importance of the local church. I love the local church, and you know, I've been a pastor of local churches for many years. Uh, I love the local church. Uh, You know, when you're a pastor, you don't get to visit a lot around. And, you know, every now and then you can get to go to other churches. But I just love the church. I love looking at churches. I love riding down the road and seeing churches, you know. And I have the habit of praying for every church when I pass them on the road. It's not a long, elaborate prayer. I just say, Lord, there's a church building And I'm sure that an active church is involved in that church building, meets in that church building, and I pray for that church. I love the local church. So let me give you some facts about the importance of the local church. Uh, Most of the New Testament was written to local churches. If you look at the New Testament, the, the book of Romans was written to the church at Rome. The book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. The book, book of Galatians was written to the churches of Galatia. Galatia wasn't a city but an area, and it was written to the churches of Galatia. First Thessalonians was written to the church at Thessalonica. Timothy was written to Timothy, who was kind of like an associational missionary for the churches around Ephesus. Titus was written to Titus, who was serving the churches on the island of Crete the book of revelation the initial audience of the book of revelation was the seven churches of asia and so most of the new testament actually was written to local congregations also it was if you study the book of acts the apostle paul had a ministry, had a, a missionary strategy you know the book of acts tells us about paul's missionary journey, uh, journeys and uh, you know, his, his three uh, travels, missionary journeys. And Paul had a pattern. He would go into a, a, a city, and if they had a synagogue, Paul would go into the synagogue. He being a visiting rabbi, studying at the feet of Gamaliel, the local synagogue leaders would see Paul and say, man, he's impressive, and they would ask him to speak, and sometimes more than one Sabbath day. Well, Paul would preach in the synagogue till he got kicked out. Because he would preach Jesus. And eventually, there would be some opposing to that message. And Paul would get kicked out. Well, then he would take the the Jews who had believed in the synagogue in Jesus. He would take them. And also, in every synagogue, there there was what was called proselytes at the door. In other words, Gentiles would come to the synagogue. Now, they were restricted to being around the door of the synagogue. But there were Gentiles who were drawn to the God of Israel. And so they would actually come in and they would worship along with the Jews in the synagogue. Many of those Gentiles would believe. So Paul would take those who believed and he would start, always start, a local church. So part of his missionary strategy was to establish a local congregation in every city where he went to preach the gospel. That's another indication of the importance of the local church. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 commands that every believer be a part of a local church and it reveals why this is important. Listen, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another And so much more as you see the day approaching. So, the the writer of Hebrews says, Look, let's get together. We need the encouragement of coming together. We need to stir one another up to greater acts of love and good works. We need to exhort one another. The day approaching is, you know, the day when Jesus will come again. Well, if it was, if in the mind of the writer of Hebrews, it was close then. How much closer is it now? (laughs) In other words, as the days go by, we need to be a part of a local church. The Christian life is designed to be lived in fellowship with other believers. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. In the local church, believers are to encourage one another in the faith. My job is to encourage you, you know, That's one of my jobs, to encourage you in the faith. And your job is to encourage me in the faith. And we are to stimulate one another to greater acts of love and and good deeds. And so it's very important in the life of a Christian to be active and involved in the life of a local church. You know, my heroes in the faith are those church members who have been in a church for year after year after year after year. They've seen the good times in the church and the struggling times in the church. They've, you know, gone through this crisis and seen this revival and they're just there. They're always there. I I call them legacy Christians or legacy church members. You know, back when I was growing up, I went to Antioch Baptist Church in uh, the Pateville community of Crisp County and, and you know, there were some of those saints. They'd be there anytime the church door was open. They were there. Wednesday night, revival, Sunday morning, Sunday night, vacation Bible school, whatever it was when the church door was open, they went there. Those are legacy church members. Those are fewer and far between now. Um, the, the The Christian life is designed to be lived in the fellowship of a local congregation. That's the way God designed the Christian life. So that we can come together and encourage one another. And to exhort one another. And to love one another. And listen, it's a rough world out there. I mean, you know, there's a growing in our country, a growing anti-Christian world out there. It's tough out there. You know, you, you. if you worked at a factory, you go to a factory and you work all week long and you're in and amongst all kinds of people and they're using all kinds of language and telling all kinds of stories and you know, and they're, they're you know, exhibiting maybe some little morals or that kind of thing and you're a Christian and you just you got to make a living and you're work doing what you're doing and you, you put up with that all week long, you try to recover a little bit on Saturday, you need to come to church on Sunday. You need to be in good fellowship with God's people to bless you and encourage you so that you can be ready to then be a witness again the following week in that old factory. And I love football, go dogs! And you know what they do? The offense does, they have a huddle. They get in a huddle before they run a play. And the quarterback, you know, he tells them, this is what I want you to do. And then they break the huddle and then they run the play. You know what church is on Sunday? We huddle together. And we encourage one another and the pastor's the quarterback and he helps us to know what we ought to do during the week and then we we get out of the huddle and we go out into the world and make a difference for Jesus that's a pretty good analogy ain't it that's what we do we huddle up on Sunday to encourage one another now we're not supposed to stay huddled up all week <laughs> because we come together to worship and we scatter to serve but you need to be in the huddle you need to be in the huddle. You need encouragement. Another reason why the church is important is, do you know that what the Bible teaches, that being a part of an active local church is a protection against the assaults of Satan on your life? In 1 Corinthians 5.5 5, and 1 Timothy 1, 1.2, those verses speak of church members being disciplined. You know, there's some church uh, uh, members who were not doing what they ought to do. They were doing some things that were not right. And Paul encouraged those church members to be disciplined. You know how he said they should be disciplined? He said, hand those church members over to Satan. What does that mean? To hand a church member? And he assumed they were Christians over to Satan? Doesn't mean, you know, strip them of their salvation. We can't do that. What he means is expel them from the church fellowship. Put them out there in the world where Satan is. Put them out there until they repent of their error and their sin and their evil and their threat to the unity and the witness of the church. So Paul said, if, you know, if they're not behaving and they're doing stuff in the church, hand them over to Satan. Put them out in the world. Now, what that means is if you want protection from Satan, one of the protections you can have is to be active and involved in the life of a local church. Have you ever missed church? And then you say to yourself, you know, man, I should have gone to church Sunday because stuff started happening to you. (laughs) I wish I'd been in church Sunday. Well, sometimes it's just coincidence and that kind of thing. But listen, you know, it's it's a tough world out there. And and being a part of an active local fellowship hinders a lot of times what Satan will try to do in our life. The church is to be a place where believers are nurtured in their faith, where they are held accountable for how they live, where they are encouraged and admonished and taught by godly leaders, God called leaders who have been gifted and called to teach the word of God to lead and watch over and shepherd the church. And so, you know, being a part of an active, active part of a local church fellowship is a very important thing. There's no such thing as long range of Christianity in the Bible. And uh, so it's, it's absolutely very important to do that. And I, I love the local church I think everybody ought to be a part of the local church. Personally, I think everybody ought to be a part of Mercedes Baptist Church. But, you know, some people, they think they ought to go somewhere else. And that's, <laughs> and that's all right. You know, that's between them and the Lord, right? But we need to be a part. Uh, in the local church, being a part of the local church is important. And being active and involved in the life of a local church is one of the elements of living a life that is worthy of the Lord. And so if you're not active and involved in the life of a local church, then you're you're not being worthy. You're not living a worthy life like the Lord would have you to live. Now, Paul in this passage talks about contributing to the welfare of the church. It's not enough just to be a part of the church, but we're to contribute to the welfare and the unity of the church. And so if you are a part of a local church, you have a responsibility. You know, we used to have church covenants on the wall. You know, where, where uh, you know, church members would make, have, they would follow the covenant. We come together and we covenant to do these things. To be a church member, you have a responsibility to your local church. Every Christian has a responsibility of contributing to the fellowship and the unity of the church to which they belong. So, how do we contribute to the fellowship and the unity of the church? Well, first of all, we contribute to the fellowship of the church by relating to one another with the attitudes and the virtues that are described in Ephesians 4.2. Listen again. All lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another in love. How do you contribute to the fellowship of the church? By having this kind of attitude, expressing these kind of virtues um, among, you know, to other church members. Paul said, you want to you strengthen the fellowship of the church, then relate to one another with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another in love. Lowliness speaks of humility. We are to relate to one another with humility. Not pride. We are to be humble. And humility, you know, you can fake humility, but you can tell it when somebody's faking humility. Humility just is simply understanding who you are and who Jesus is. And and humility. God hates pride. Pride. And I've, I've seen some proud old rascals. <laughs> I say that in all Christian love, in my years of the ministry. And pride will lead, listen, pride will lead to all kinds of troubles and trials. And you yeah, humility. And I'll tell you this about humility. The closer you walk with the Lord, the more humble you will be. The closer you walk with a holy, perfect and righteous God, the more humble you will be that that God would love somebody like you. <laughs> and so we're to build up the fellowship of the church by being humble to one another. You know? Talk to everybody. Love everybody the same. Talk to everybody. Treat everybody the same. Then he says gentleness. That speaks of having a gentle meek, kind, patient attitude toward our fellow believers, to be gentle. You know, we're not to rag on one another and beat one another up and all that stuff. We're to have a gentle spirit, a meek spirit, a kind spirit, to be patient with our fellow believers. Long-suffering, Paul says. That means slow to anger it means this one who is able to bear injuries, slights, and insults without retaliation. Now, that'll test your Christianity to be long suffering. Somebody Arr! on you. Instead of you Arr! back, you pray for them. You bear, their, you bear injuries and slights and insults. You have it within your power to retaliate, but you don't. Always think about Jesus on the cross. He had the power to kill every human being there and on the face of the earth. But he didn't do it. Right? He did not do it. Long-suffering. Bearing with one another means to make allowances for the faults and the failures of our fellow believers. To bear with their weaknesses and their failings. To bear with one another. You know, not, some. listen, our fellow Christians are gonna fail sometimes. They're gonna fall sometimes. They're gonna do stupid things sometimes. But to, to, to bear with that and to pray for them and, and to encourage them and to bear with their weaknesses and their failings. And love, bearing with one another in love, speaks of the love and affection we should have for our fellow believers. Love means you always seek the highest good for the other person. That's agape love. You always seek the highest good for the other person. And so you want to help make the fellowship of the church strong? Then relate to one another, to others in lowliness, in gentleness, Long-suffering and bearing with one another. Loving other Christians. Y'all will not believe the things I had to bear with in my ministry. <laughs> Woo! Early in my ministry, I didn't bear with nothing. You know? You got on Brother Christian's bad side, That's tough, boy. And here I go. But the older I got, and the more experience I got, the more I realized that that was not productive. You know? To bear with people. And to love people and to encourage people. Because you see, for me, see, as a pastor, you set the pattern for how people relate to one another. If if you're obnoxious and you get in people's face and you blah, 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 then that sets a pattern for other people to follow. And so you don't want to do that. So you set the pattern of loving others and being patient with others and encouraging others. So that if you want to strengthen the fellowship of your church, relate to others in that way. If you want to strengthen the the unity of the church, listen, verses three through six again, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all, through all and in you all. Here's what Paul says. It is the Holy Spirit of God that gives unity and peace to the church. It's the Holy Spirit who gives unity and peace to the church. It is the responsibility of every believer in that church to protect that unity and peace that God gives to the church. To keep it, to guard it, to protect it, to keep it intact, it is God, Holy, the Holy Spirit, who gives us unity and peace. It's your responsibility and my responsibility to do everything we can to maintain the unity and peace that God gives to his people. We have a responsibility to do that. It is a dangerous thing when a person needlessly and selfishly sacrifices the unity and and the peace of a church to accomplish their own personal goal or agenda. I've had to fight battles in my ministry over folks who felt like if they didn't get their way, they're going to tear everything up. You know? And that's no, you don't do that. God gives us unity and peace. You know, I I, I told my, I don't know if I told y'all, but I, I told most of my churches that I minister to, that I'm not going to be a part of a church fight. I'm not going to be a part of a church breakup. I'm not going to be a part of all that kind of business where the guy leaves and he takes half the church with him. I'm not doing that. Never have, never will. And I told him, if he comes to the point where you don't want Brother Chris anymore, you just tell me and I'll leave. I won't fight nobody. Is that wrong? I don't think that's wrong at all. That's just the way I am. That's the way I'm wired, I guess. See, we have the responsibility to build up the fellowship of the church and the unity of the church. And so we build up the the fellowship by all of those qualities he talks about. And we build up the unity by making sure that we do everything we can do to, to, to keep the unity and the peace that God has given to his church. Sometimes you have to lose. You know, sometimes you want something and you don't get your way. So what you going to do? You going to sit in the pew and pout? I ain't singing at him. Don't sing all you want to. I ain't singing at him. You know? Or Brother Chris walks by and say, how you doing? You turned the head. You know what Brother Chris says to that? You can leave all I care. Go on. You're not gonna tear this church up over your mess. Now, if I'm wrong, the Lord's gonna whoop me. <laughs> and believe me, I've been to the woodshed many times. But I just I feel like, you know we have a responsibility to do that. You know, it's my responsibility to love y'all and encourage y'all. That's my responsibility to encourage the fellowship and the unity of the church in that way. And you know, I, I love Brother Chuck. Brother Chuck's a great man. He has served this church in a great way for how many years, Chuck? 23, 23 years. Do you know one of the most, one of the most important elements to the unity of a church is the pastor needs to get along with the deacons, and the deacons need to get along with the pastor, and the pastor needs to get along with the, the music director, youth director, or whatever they may be. There needs to be unity among the deacon body and the pastor and unity among the pastor and the staff. Because if you ever get junk in there, it's not only going to affect those relationships, it's going to affect all the church relationships. I need to write a book on this stuff. Amen. You know, I just do. I need to Because I've learned a lot, mostly from messing up. You know? So... And now, listen, I'm going to hurry. What time is it? Have we had supper yet? We ain't had supper yet. I need to hurry then. Get home to that steak and the table. Well, it looks just like bologna. You know, it's bologna. No, it's not bologna. I don't know what it is. All right. The unity of the church is built on seven spiritual realities that Paul lists in verses four through six. We are to be one because we are all members of the same body of the Lord's church. The Lord's church. We're all members. We are to be one because we're all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that lives in me is the same Holy Spirit who lives within you. Doesn't that unite us? We all share the same hope of glory. We all look forward. To the heaven we're going to the same destination shouldn't that unite us we're part of the same body we're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit we're going to the same place of glory we are all saved by and we all serve the same Lord we're all serving the same Lord shouldn't that unite us we're all saved by the same faith we were all saved the same way through the gospel of Jesus Christ We all share the same baptism of the Spirit. When I gave my life to Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live within me. When you gave your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live within you. We all have the same Father. Don't we? So therefore, we should be united. We have the same Father. Who is God over all. And the God who lives in His people by the Holy Spirit. We got every reason to be one and united. See, that's how the Holy Spirit of God gives unity and peace to the church. We have all of those things in common. Therefore, is it right for us not to live in unity? If that's true, is it right for us not to live in unity and in oneness? And so you know, like when a local church has to make a decision to build this or to do this or to you know do that or what uh, you know one another kind of thing, you know, you may have to hash it out. You may have disagreements. You may say, "I think we ought to do this." I think we ought to do that. Let's do this. Let's do that. You may have disagreements, but then you you, you do your thing. You do your study. You come together. You say, "Well, I think this is the best thing to do." You have your vote, and if it goes one way then you do it that way, you know? There was, there, there was um, I don't know if it was J.C. Penney or not. It was somebody who was really a rich guy, really a rich guy, you know, some famous guy, if I remember correctly, I can't remember his name. He was in a church, and, you know, he had a lot of influence because of who he was and what he had, you know, and the church decided to do something, to build something, to do something that this guy was not in favor of. You know? But the church decided to do it. Then they said, we need a committee to run this thing. Who can we get to head the committee? The gentleman who was against it raised his hand and said, I'll run the committee. He said, if this is what the church wants, I'll help run the committee and I'll give it my very best because I'm a member of this church and this church has decided this is the right thing to do and I'm going to support my church. Now, if I was the pastor of that church and that man said that after all of that, I'd have kissed him right there in the sanctuary and gave him a big old hug. That's the kind of church members you need and you want. So Paul talks about the unity and the fellowship and the importance of the local church. All right.